Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, I'm Hub and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. It's been a little bit chilly in these cold winter months and I've been feeling slightly under the weather, but have been combating that by drinking a lot of herbal tea. Right now, I'm having a cup of jammin' lemon ginger. Pretty good shit. I knew it was going to be good because it had some cartoon animals playing jazz on the box cover. Always a great sign. It's got a bear playing the upright bass and a raccoon playing a sliced lemon like it's a pair of bongos and a fox playing the saxophone. And as soon as I looked at that picture, I instantly knew two things. One, that's going to be some good herbal tea. And B, that fox is high as fuck. Now, why did I single out the fox specifically as being so high? I mean, the raccoon's playing lemons like it's bongo drums. That is not generally considered the mark of a sober individual. But here's the thing. Raccoons are terrifying monsters, and I don't want to stay on its good side. Maybe he's high, maybe he's not. None of my business. Raccoon, you just keep on keeping on. I'm not fucking with you. Not fucking with the fox either. But, and here's the thing that maybe I forgot to mention, the fox is wearing sunglasses. And if somebody's wearing sunglasses and playing the saxophone, chances are that individual is either high as fuck or is appearing on the Arsenio Hall show in 1992 as part of their presidential campaign. Possibly both. But saxophone aside... How did sunglasses become the instant shorthand that we all recognize for cool, cool person? Did it start off as just shorthand for high as fuck and, you know, wearing sunglasses to disguise the fact that their eyes are all bloodshot? And then somewhere along the line, our brains started making the connection that, hey, you know who's cool? People that are high as fuck. And then the two ideas just got conflated somehow. Or have I been misreading my cultural shorthand this whole time and the characters that I think of as being cool are not necessarily supposed to uh, be cool. They're just supposed to be high as fuck. Is Spot, the 7-Up mascot, supposed to be high as fuck? Maybe. Is the Squirtle Squad supposed to be just stoned out of their minds? I mean, both of the examples I just gave are very concerned with hydration, so that would kind of make sense. And if Super Duper Stoned is in fact the message that I'm supposed to be getting from these sunglasses-wearing cartoon characters, were there first drafts to that? Like, somewhere out there, is there a discarded design idea for a box of tea that has a fox not playing the saxophone and wearing sunglasses, but playing the saxophone and binge-watching episodes of MacGyver on Netflix? Or a bumblebee who can't remember why he just walked into the room he's standing in. Or an adorable cartoon panda who's really, really concerned all of the other cartoon animals can hear his thoughts and hate him. Or a cartoon cheetah who's just really obsessed with a particular brand of cheese-flavored puffed cornmeal snacks. Or a cute cartoon mole who is listening to the introduction of this podcast and enjoying it. In summation, jam and lemon ginger is a pretty decent herbal tea, and stay in school. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this.
Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Morgan Weber. Receiving intro poems brings hub nonstop bliss, so give the guy a break and submit a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Morgan. And yeah, what they said. Defenders, number 44, February 1977. Rage of the Rajah. Story by Jerry Conway. Dialogue by Roger Sliffer and David Anthony Kraft. Drotted by Keith Giffen. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Colored by Glynis Ween. Lettered by John Costanza. And edited by Jerry Conway. Defensive lineup. The Incredible Hulk. Valkyrie. Nighthawk. Red Guardian. Power Man. And introducing Hellcat. Previously in The Defenders. The Defenders were attacked by a new team of criminal crumbums calling themselves the Emissaries of Evil. These self-styled messengers of malfeasance demanded that our perplexed protagonists hand over a giant magic ruby called the Star of Capistan. Our titular non-team informed their assailants that they had never heard of the mystical MacGuffin in question. Then they beat the shit out of the Emissaries and sent them packing back to their space satellite headquarters. The battered bad guy brigade's boss, the egomaniacal egghead, was incredulous at the defender's ignorance. He had learned that the ruby's protector was Omar Karindu, a man who despite never having appeared in a comic book before, was apparently Stephen Strange's best friend in the whole world. Since Karindu had just journeyed to New York, Egghead assumed that the recently retconned into existence custodian of the mystical mineral must plan on passing the puissant periapt to his pal Steve. Well, Egghead, you know what they say about making assumptions. When you assume, fuck you. Only it turned out that the ovoid-headed asshole wasn't incorrect in his assumption, merely premature. For while the defenders were still celebrating surviving the surprise strike by the sorceress stone-seeking supervillains, Doctor Strange received word that his oldest, dearest, never-before-mentionedest pal, Omar, would like to meet him at a nearby hotel. Naturally, Steve rushed over and was informed by his clandestine closest companion that the star of Capistan had gone all screwy. When the concerned conjurer inspected the allegedly janky gemstone, he got all zonked out and his eyes lost focus, their pupils seemingly replaced with images of tiny rubies. Curiouser and curiouser. When Egghead observed from his orbital center of operations that Steve and Omar were having a conjurer's confab, he sent two of his emissaries, the rampaging rhino and canonically established Schlemiel Solar, to interrupt this meeting of mages. But before they had made it into the hotel room, the dim-witted duo of do-batters was assaulted and almost immediately knocked unconscious by a mysterious glowing red stranger who identified himself only as the Red Rajah. Meanwhile, after attempting a solo assault on the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Egghead got the shit beaten out of him by Luke Cage and then apparently died in a conveniently self-contained nuclear explosion. Hooray! And also, Gadzooks! Have we really seen the last of the egomaniacal and also regular maniacal Egghead? Who is behind the mask and turban of the mysterious Red Rajah? And will having three writers on this issue result in three times as much story? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, nope. He comes back and fights the Avengers a couple of times. Then he dies again. Then he comes back again. Then he's a robot or something. You know, comic book shit. Um, it's Steve. The Red Raja is Steve. And, nope, 
Regular amount of story. Whole lot more words, though. So many words. The Defenders are hanging out in Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious when the Hulk starts going on a destructive rampage because he's worried that Steve has been missing for a while. Luke and Nighthawk try to calm the Hulk down by hitting and pushing him, but for some reason that doesn't work out so great. Weird. Finally, Val intervenes and is like, You know what, the Hulk? You've got a good point. Steve's been gone for over a day now, and Clea says that he's not having private time with those weird little flame ghosts, so I think it's reasonable to be a bit concerned. Calm down for a second, and we'll come up with a plan to go look for him. Nice work, Val. Once again, a sword-toting ancient Viking warrior is the reasonable voice of restraint. Meanwhile, in a different part of Steve's apartment, Dr. Tanya Belinsky, a.k.a. the Red Guardian, angrily hangs up the phone. It seems that someone fairly high up in the Soviet government is agitating for her to return home to Russia. Steve used a combination of diplomacy and mind control, guess which part of that formula was doing the heavy lifting, to secure the crimson-clad crime fighter an extended work visa, so the mysterious advocate for the expedition of Val's involuntary homecoming has now resorted to making implied threats to the well-being of her extended family. Shitty. Dr. Belinsky confides her problems to Valkyrie and the Hulk. Since it's 1977 and Dungeons and Dragons only came out a couple of years ago, they don't know that it's always a bad idea to split the party, so the gang decides that Luke, Kyle, and the Hulk will head out in search of Steve, while Val will stick around the Sanctum to offer moral support to the Red Guardian as she attempts to decide whether or not she should capitulate to the demands of her mysterious blackmailer and return to the USSR. Man. If I had to choose between battling a mystic force capable of overwhelming the Earth's Sorcerer Supreme and having a difficult emotional conversation with a co-worker, I'm honestly not sure which way I'd go with that. As Luke, the Hulk, and Nighthawk are headed out, there's a knock at the door. Oh good, it's everyone's least favorite matrimonially-minded meathead, Jack Norris. Okay, I guess it's not such a tough decision after all. If that asshole Jack is hanging around while I'm trying to offer emotional support to my work friend, I'm definitely heading out to help the Hulk punch magic ghosts and shit. No question. A little while ago, Kyle had paid Mr. Norris, the estranged ex-husband of Barbara Norris, whose body is the host of the sorcerously created persona of Valkyrie, $300,000 to go away and never come back. Which, frankly, would have been a bargain, if it had worked. Which, apparently, it didn't. Jack says that he isn't going to stick around. He just wanted to talk to Val for a minute. I'd ask which part of go away and never come back Jack doesn't understand, but it's pretty clear that it's the never come back part. Val reluctantly agrees to hear what the connubially confused contract reneging creep has to say. What Jack has to say is pretty much what Jack always has to say. I married the woman whose body you're squatting in, so that means you're my wife and I love you, so stop fighting crime and settle down and be married to me. Valkyrie responds that A... Val never married Jack, her host body did, and despite what society might think, there's more to Valkyrie than her body. And two, fuck off, Jack. I'm trying to superhero over here. Jack storms out angrily, declaring as he does so that Valkyrie will never see him again. Val's like, okay, good, and I'll see you next week, asshole. Jack stalks off into the streets of Greenwich Village, but once he gets outside, his anger rapidly turns to terror as he is confronted by a mysterious figure from his past. Terrified, Jack sprints away from the enigmatic entity, yelling over his shoulder as he does so that he told them he wants nothing more to do with them and why won't they just leave him alone? Gee, someone from your past showing up and refusing to go away even though you've asked them to repeatedly? Sounds rough. 
Maybe if you gave them $300,000? Nah, that never works. Meanwhile, across town, Nighthawk, the Hulk, and Luke Cage arrive at Omar Corindu's hotel just in time to see the police hauling the unconscious bodies of Rhino and canonically established Shlemiel Solar off to super prison. Kyle asks what happened, and the delightfully gruff chain-smoking officer in charge, a Lieutenant Chris Keating, informs him that 1. He has no idea, and B. It's none of Kyle's business. Fair enough. Kyle says that he just came by to see Steve's recently non-existent best friend, Omar Karindu. Lieutenant Keating is like, Okay, fine. He's annoying and probably full of shit, and you're annoying and probably full of shit. Maybe if I stick you guys in a room together, you'll solve this case for me. Huh. Interesting approach to police work. If that's how cases get solved, maybe you guys should keep Jack Norris on a retainer. He'll be closing cases left and right. When Omar finds out that the Defenders are friends of Doctor Strange, he tells them, Oh shit, I'm so sorry guys, but I think my magic ruby fucked Steve up pretty seriously. My bad. Back at the Sanctum, Valkyrie and the Red Guardian are having a heart-to-heart -heart when they're interrupted by an uninvited guest. Oh shit, is Jack back already? Usually his resolution to leave and never return takes at least a day or two to wear off. No? Thankfully, this time the intruder is a red-haired lady in a yellow and blue kitty cat suit. Hooray! It's Patsy Walker, Hellcat. She's great. Patsy explains that some super-duper bad shit is about to go down, and she was hoping that the Defenders might help out. Val and Tanya request a little additional exposition. So Hellcat explains that she had left the Avengers to go live in space and hang out with her no-haired pal Moondragon, who was teaching her how to be better at telepathy and kung fu. She had just started her Jedi training when Moondragon's cosmic spider sense started going off and warned her that some cataclysmic metaphysical hullabaloo was about to go off down on Earth. So Hellcat better pop down there and give everybody a heads up so as they could get their thwart on. So that's what Patsy did. First she swung by the Avengers mansion to tell them to keep their eyes peeled, and then she let herself into Steve's pad to clue the Defenders in. After hearing her out, Red Guardian replies, Cool story, Hellcat, but what is nature of this cosmic crisis? Patsy responds, Oh, the whole world is about to be turned into mindless zombies by what I'm calling the Curse of the Ruby. Pretty catchy, huh? Oh, look, it's starting. Sure enough, as the three heroes look out the window, they see that a teeming throng of apparently mindless pedestrians are swarming the sidewalks of New York. Hmm, I bet this is related to the star of Kapistan somehow. Either that or they're just the usual throng of mindless pedestrians who are lined up to buy cronuts, am I right? Wake up, sheeple! Donuts don't need improvement! Being personally made by noted character actor James Cromwell doesn't make a donut more delicious. That's what a cronut is, right? A portmanteau of James Cromwell and donut? I'm pretty sure. Anyway, the trio of colorfully clad crime fighters take to the streets. Valkyrie is alarmed to notice a familiar face among the zombified horde. It's Wong. Oh no, he's not easily suckered into trendy food stuff, so this must be serious. Back at Omar's hotel room, the erstwhile guardian of the Star of Kapistan is filling the rest of the defenders in on the not-so-benign Bobble's backstory. Turns out, the ruby is an enormously powerful sentient gem that is sensitive to human brainwaves. Above all else, it prizes peace and harmony, which sounds nice, but I guess the magic rock isn't exactly particular about how that ends is achieved, which can be a bit problematic. Omar is the leader of a group called the Cult of the Unliving Four that has been guarding the stone for thousands of years. 
Seems like for PR reasons, it might be a good idea to take the word cult out of the name of your organization. But I guess when you're a secret society, you don't really need to worry about that shit so much. Anyway, the cult of the Unliving Four has been protecting mankind from the Star of Kapistan because while the ruby isn't evil per se, it doesn't really get the idea of free will. It also likes to do this thing where it takes over a host body and forms a being called the Red Raja. Last time it did that was in 1933, but fortunately the body it took over was just a regular dude, so Omar was able to just sneak up and shoot that dude in the back of the head when the magic rock wasn't paying attention. Dang. Omar is pretty ruthless. And in great shape for his age. This time, stopping the Red Raja is going to be a little more tricky on account of the host body the Star of Kapistan is using is that of... The Sorcerer Supreme, Dr. Stephen Strange. You know, like I said at the end of the previously in the Defenders thing. I guess Luke, Kyle, and Hulk didn't listen to that bit because they all seem pretty surprised. They're even more surprised when Omar, Lieutenant Keating, and everyone else in the building start shuffling towards the hotel doors, their eyes glazed over as they unthinkingly take to the streets like a throng of cronut-seeking tourists. Our heroes head out after them and find that the crowd is headed not to James Cromwell's bakery, but to a glowing red figure standing triumphantly in the heart of the city, holding sway over a sea of glassy-eyed humanity that has gathered to hear their new leader's speech. He's giving the standard, Hey, everybody. I know that free will seems cool, but you know what's even cooler? Totally relinquishing your individuality and allowing your thoughts and desires to be totally subsumed by a collective consciousness guided by a single leader, me. Am I right? This guy knows what I'm talking about. It's not a great speech, but when your audience is completely brainwashed, it doesn't really matter what you say. As the current political climate will attest to. Huh? Huh? But no, actually, yeah. Fortunately, Nighthawk, Power Man, and the Hulk aren't part of the Red Raja slash Steve's echo chamber, so they start yelling at him and punching him and stuff. Hooray! Only not so hooray, because after a brief preliminary scuffle, our heroes soon find themselves under the Raja's sway as well. Looks like the Earth's only hope is the combined forces of Hellcat, Red Guardian, and Valkyrie, who have now arrived on the scene just in time to pose like badasses and tell the Red Raja that he'd better knock it off. Hooray! To be continued. Huh. I wonder if since Steve's never-before-seen best pal Omar Corindo turns out to actually exist, the rest of the Defenders are starting to wonder if he actually did have a high school girlfriend who was a model from Canada but they wouldn't know because she went to a different school and they met at camp. Nah. Even brainwashing can only go so far. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good drinking a salted caramel stout pretty good not yeah, bad not bad it's like a nice dessert beer a dessert beer indeed yeah for when you finish your whiskey oh no i'm having dessert <laughs> before whiskey oh you forgot that old adage i did whiskey before dessert fuck you <laughs> dessert before whiskey ah. yeah i forgot that one it's kind of a tough mnemonic device because it doesn't rhyme Mm -hmm. But still, good to remember. That last part's not really a word. Uh, I guess not technically. Mm. So, 
We read a comic book. We did indeed. What did you think of that comic book? I was really struck by the artwork in it. And this has come up a few times on the show, but I tend to read the Defenders run in the trade paperback. That's that's the black and white version. Mm-hmm. And then do my notes later in the colorized version. And this is one of the rare times where I feel like the black and white version actually was kind of better in terms of the artwork than the color one. Yeah, I was looking through yours while we were taking notes, and I agree. The last issue was colored and inked by Klaus Janssen. And Klaus Janssen's inks are still really strong. Uh, this issue is colored by Glynis Ween, who's a good colorist, and she's been a colorist for a lot of previous Defenders issues, but it's not quite as cohesive as it was when Jansen was coloring his own inked work. And yeah, I was struck by the dynamism I, I felt like came through better in the black and white version in a lot of ways. Mm. Still good for both versions, but it was interesting to note that. Indeed. We also just have a lot of different people working on this issue. We have three different writers working on it, in addition to the penciler, inker, and colorist, and letterer. The story is by Jerry Conway, and he's still the editor, but the dialogue is by two different people. David Kraft, who is usually credited as David Anthony Kraft, who I think Gerber might have been making fun of in the previous David Anthony appearances, the uh, hippie cowboy dude who lived on the commune in Arizona. Guy who was real loquacious. Indeed. And I don't know David Anthony Kraft personally, but the characters in this issue are certainly loquacious. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a case where you had three different writers, and that made for a whole lot of words. It did, and I was late to come here to do the show, and I always try and read beforehand, so I was reading really fast, and every time I turned the page, I was like, God damn it, there's so <laughs> many words. Yeah, there are a lot of words in this, and a lot of for the most part, unnecessary words, I feel like. The other writer is uh, Roger Sliffer, who I'm not particularly familiar with. He wrote a few issues of The Defenders here. He had a few other titles that he worked on. Probably best known for he did the first 13 issues of The Omega Man, which made him the co-creator of Lobo, who was a big thing in the 90s. But yeah, I felt like they had kind of the idea in broad strokes of who these characters are, but there's a lot of what I'm going to call Fruity Pebbles commercial master rapper dialogue going on, where a character will show up, say what their name is, and then say what they're here to say. I understand what you mean, and I feel (laughs) like I should get that reference, but I don't recall a Fruity Pebbles rapping commercial. Oh, I'm the master rapper, and I'm here to say I love Fruity Pebbles in a major way. That he loves Fruity Pebbles in a major way. That rings a bell. Maybe I just blocked it out. Yeah, it's possible. You have repressed memories of Barney Rubble. Oh, no. Did he try to take your Fruity Pebbles? He just seems like a bad choice for a rap guy. Yeah, in very many ways. Yeah. The bedrock, purple, orange, something, lime, and red. But to get their fruity taste, I've got to trick Fred. To get their fruity taste, he's got to trick Fred. (laughs) Fred was his DJ at that. Oh, okay. And it was like, what? Hmm. I'm Fred. I don't like being tricked. Oh, Barney. Also, he's not a master rapper. But yeah, you you see what I'm saying with this, where the, the character will pretty much show up and give dialogue trying to distill their essence. Some characters come off better in this than others. The ones that I think come off the worst are Luke Cage. Definitely, they are playing up and don't have a really good handle on how to write slang for him. So we're seeing way more apostrophes than he usually gets. And 
doesn't come across great. And also, Nighthawk, I feel like, is way more reasonable than he should be. Yeah. <laughs> just didn't didn't really ring true. And just in general, this whole issue is super exposition heavy. There is a lot of both telling and showing in a way that I think will settle down over time. I think overall the writing is probably better than when it was just Jerry Conway doing the writing. And I do like David uh, Anthony Kraft a lot as a writer. I feel like he gets a better handle on it, but this issue is a little bit rough in terms of that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you think it'll settle down. It was a bit on the wordy side. Yeah. I mean, I think it remains on the wordy side, but what the words are is a little bit better in, later on. That's fair. I had to think about it for a second, but that yeah, makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, yeah, there is something to be said for the fact that I am using way too many words to describe the fact that there are too many words. I don't know how else you do it. Here, press help. So, we get the return of a character we hadn't seen in a while. Jack fucking Norris is back. Boo. Boo. Which seems to be the universal reaction of the rest of the Defenders, which I took a little bit of solace in. What I did not take solace in was it appears the reason that they're having him back is to cement some sort of a plot point that's going to show up later where he sees some mystery dude and he's like, oh no, when he's leaving. Yeah, it seems like he maybe gets kidnapped by some mystical entity. Uh, I know that he and Barbara had previously joined a cult. Maybe it has something to do with that. Wouldn't it be great if Valkyrie finds out about that and she's just like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and that's the last we hear of him. <laughs> that would be pretty nice. So this is an issue where we have the Red Raja showing up again and Hellcat, who we'll talk more about later, shows up and she just teleported here from space where she had been training to be a better psychic and kung fu master with Moon Dragon. But I think that the most unrealistic thing that happened in this issue is that somebody wanted Jack Norris. <laughs> yeah. Really stretches the bounds of credulity there. Maybe they just wanted to punch him or something. Oh, I can see that. I did think it was pretty funny that he shows up and Kyle's response was, Nope! Nope! I paid you $300,000 to go away, and I know that it was part of a ruse on your part, but a deal's a deal. I really liked that. I also really liked Val's reaction to him, and we talked about some of the characters' voices being a little bit off in this. I really liked Val's character voice throughout this issue. I thought it was really well done. And especially the way that she dealt with Jack Norris and really laid it all out on Front Street was like, hey, here's the deal. You keep saying you love me. You don't know me. You can't wrap your mind around the fact that I'm not the person whose body I'm inhabiting. And I'm sick of it. And we're done. You need to get over that fact. I didn't take over Barbara's body on purpose, but I'm here now. And that's that. And Jack Norris has been saying, but Val, I love you. And she responds, you don't even know me. And that pisses him off. But the way that he reacts to that is really to acknowledge that she is absolutely right. I think he doesn't realize that he's doing it. But what he says is, after saying that he loves her, it's as easy as that for you, isn't it? All right, then, if that's really the way you want it, it would have been nice to know you. And then he slams out of the room. So he's acknowledging that he doesn't know her, despite the fact that he just professed his love for her. So... There's Jack Norris in a nutshell. And then he goes outside and gets taken away. Maybe the guy puts him in a nutshell. I don't know. That's where he belongs. Mm-hmm, because he's a nut. Mm-hmm. Good one. Thanks. That is exactly how I would characterize that joke. A good one. A <laughs> good one. We meet a 
new character. We meet Hellcat. Had you been familiar with Hellcat at all? No, but based on the fact that she was, what did she say, that she had been um, given the opportunity to join the Avengers? Mm-hmm. And didn't. I feel like I should know her. She has been around in the Marvel Universe for a very long time. As a matter of fact, of people that are, I think, ongoing characters, there are only a few that have been around longer than her. She first debuted in 1944. Wow. As a teenage romance comic book heroine. Timely at the time, before it was Marvel, was publishing a line of comics. I think it was Patsy Walker was one of them. And uh, Millie the Model was, I think, around that time. And then they both continued into the 50s and I believe had a little bit of a comeback in the 60s. I might be wrong about that. But they then decided to later fold her into the regular Marvel Universe, which is kind of weird. It would be like having Archie show up in, like, the Marvel Universe, which did happen. In the 90s, there was an Archie-Punisher crossover. Whoa, what? Yeah. Was yeah. it as bad as it sounds? Uh, I honestly don't remember. I mean, I think it was at least self-aware of the fact that it was goofy. But Patsy Walker is a super interesting character to me. She is wearing the costume of a different Marvel heroine at this point, once she transitions into the superhero genre from the teen romance genre. The costume that she is wearing originally belonged to a character called Greer Grant Nelson, who was introduced in the early 70s as part of a line of comics that Marvel was trying to do, trying being a very generous way to describe what they were doing because they really didn't try very hard. But there was a line of comic books that was all female protagonists that was actually written by women. Which is great, except for that they really didn't give it much of a try. They, I don't think, it was four titles, and none of them lasted more than four issues. One of them was Night Nurse, which was great. We've talked about that on the older show. Mm-hmm. One of them was Sheena the She-Devil, and one of them was Beware the Claws of the Cat. And the cat was the character who's wearing a costume that Patsy Walker is wearing now as Hellcat. But the character who had worn that before was a character who was a feminist and a scientist who was working with another scientist lady and had developed this suit that would help her harness all of her innate abilities. Kind of a Captain America level of superpowers where just like, being the best at everything, but nothing really supernatural about it. But the guy who was funding them turned out to be a real misogynist creep who wanted to make people wearing the outfit that she had developed to help harness her powers be worn by women that he could turn into slaves. Anyway, that was a whole thing. But that character, Greer, ended up later turning into a werecat and became Tigra, who you might be familiar with. Oh, wow. What a twisted tail. Yeah, but once she was Tigra, she started wearing that little bikini with a skull in the middle. So she didn't need her old outfit anymore, so Patsy Walker got that. That's quite a story. Mm -hmm. It gets more complicated later. Because later on we find out that the Patsy Walker comic books from the 40s exist within the Marvel Universe. What? And that her mom fictionalized Patsy Walker's past to capitalize on it. That is in a later Defenders issue, though, and I'm excited for when we get to that. That one is written by David Kraft, and it's one of my favorite Defenders stories. Also, the character Patsy Walker, uh, you might know by a different name if you watch the Jessica Jones series. Mm -hmm. She is called Trish Walker in that. Oh. I guess they decided that different nickname for Patricia was the way to go for some reason. Mm. But yeah, that character is based on 
Patsy Walker as well. So that's the Hellcat. And then she went to space with Bald Lady to learn how to be better at kung fu and being a psychic. I think later they drop the fact that she's a little bit psychic. But yeah, that's who she is. There's so much more than meets the eye. Pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. I really like that character. And I'm glad that she is joining up with the Defenders. So she's in space training. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, she gets word somehow that something terrible is about to befall the Earth. Mm -hmm. Moondragon's a very powerful telepath. Okay. And so she picks up on some, like, cosmic vibes that the world's fucked. And so naturally, she decides to pop in to see Steve, because that's just what you do. Yeah, you get a uh, world-level quasi-mystical threat. You pop in to see Steve. First, she swung by the Avengers and was like, Hey guys, you're on notice. I might need you later. I'm gonna go see Steve. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Steve, he's up to some shenanigans. He Ruby stole his danged mind. He doesn't even know what's going on. Mm-mm. This is the second time when it seems like the Defender's biggest threat is a Ruby. This time it's not Ruby Thursday. Mm. It's a Ruby called the Star of Kapistan. That's right. It's got a mind of its own. Mm, and now it's got a mind of Steve's too. Mm-hmm. We see once again, and we get the first time we get a lot of dialogue from Omar Karindu. He has a lot to say. He really does. And some of what he has to say is pretty dang weird. He's been the guardian of the Star of Kapistan for a while, and the Ruby is a real dick. <laughs> but it's a real dick that just wants peace, but wants peace so hard that it'll just fuck everything up. Which is a thing we've seen before. This is kind of a motif that is pretty common in comic books. The peace, but at what cost? We already saw it in The Defenders very recently with that was kind of Nebulon's whole deal. Like, you can have peace, but I'll have to run everything for there to be peace. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the Ruby is of a similar mind, that it's peace at all cost. And uh, this Ruby's really putting a fist back in pacifist. Because as it's talking about there's no need for fighting, it is beating the shit out of the Hulk and Power Man. Mm-hmm. And Nighthawk, but I feel like everybody does that. Yeah, Doctor Strange Ruby Head is very strong mm-hmm. in, this, in this issue. Well, and we see that the Ruby has only manifested itself once before as the Red Raja. And Omar Karindu describes it in this kind of weird way where he's like, some poor unfortunate found it and... Well, it took over his body. Fortunately, I was able to get things under control. We see the way that he got things under control was by sneaking up and shooting that guy in the back of the head as soon as he turned into the Red Raja. That's pretty fucked up, man. Well, peace at what cost? It doesn't seem like he really gave the Red Raja much of a chance. The guy's like, hey, is this a ruby? And then he turns into the Red Raja and he's just like, oh shit, bang. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tough job, man. I don't want that job. No. But it seems like he doesn't have any real evidence that he's working on that. He says, Despite accounts surviving from the time of ancient Lemuria, the actual existence of the Star of Kapistan was in doubt until the jewel was found in 1933 by an unfortunate in the ruins of Dashital. Dashital. (laughs) And upon contact, gem and man became one, the Red Raja. However, in its eagerness to inhabit a human form, the ruby made do with an essentially powerless host body. So the guy's not a threat when he's the Red Raja. But we see that he doesn't even move from the place where he found it before Omar comes up behind him and shoots him in the back. And that's the first time there's been a Red Raja. So what is Omar basing the fact that this thing is a huge danger on? 
Yeah, the way I read it, he like had a user's guide or something. It's like, uh, if this happens, then do this thing. Sorry. That's what you do. Yeah. It reminds me of that thing in like zombie movies where like if you if I get bitten if you think I'm turning into a zombie I need you to shoot me in the head immediately like this is a relatively new phenomenon I want you to promise me Corey and I don't know if we've done this before if you ever think that I'm turning into a zombie do not shoot me under any circumstances because it is so unlikely that I am turning into a zombie and it is very likely that maybe one of us has just had too much to drink or you're just tired yeah Exactly. We're full. Mm-hmm. Just, oh. <laughs> Burrito. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, maybe I have a bit of indigestion and I want to eat more. I think I should eat more bran. And I'm just like, bran. Ah, <laughs> oh, my, my bowels aren't working right. I need bran. Yeah. And like, brains? Oh, fuck. Bang. Pull out one more corindu on me. No, thank you. Okay. Yeah. It's a deal. And everybody out there, just never shoot anybody in the head if you think they're a zombie. Because zombies aren't real. But getting shot in the head is. And also Bran is. So eat, eat your enough fiber. Bran. Yeah, get your fiber. Don't shoot anybody. It's the tighten up the defense pledge. <laughs> we meet another new character in this issue. Lieutenant Chris Keating. Yeah. What'd you think of him? Uh, he seemed cool as a cucumber. He's a tough, no-nonsense cop, and he also is drawn to resemble very much Jack Kirby. He looks a lot like Jack Kirby, and it was really fun to see him in this comic. In future appearances, I don't think he bears quite the same resemblance, but it was nice to see a gruff Jack Kirby walking around in a Marvel comic. It was pretty cool. He's uh, got a fun parable that he shares about how you deal with situation if two people both think they're the Pope. I don't remember. What did... What? Oh, I don't think I'm making that up. Let's take a look. But you guys gave me an idea for a new tack. I heard once where two kooks both claimed to be the Pope. Their shrink put them in the same room to fight it out. Oh. And Nighthawk says, so? And his response is, you guys know any Latin? Because the Pope, like, gives mass in Latin. So he wants them to fight it? He's saying, I think you guys are crazy. This Omar Corindu guy's crazy. So send a thief to catch a thief. That makes sense. Okay. I was having a tough time following his line of reasoning. I think that's fair. It is kind of a convoluted parable that he's worked out there. Also, I love the phrase send a thief to catch a thief because it applies to almost no situation. I think the idea is like, uh, you know, the criminal mind understands the criminal mind. I guess that works. It's like... But it doesn't mean that it would do any good. Send a mathematician to solve a word problem. That is not the same thing as send a thief to catch a thief. The way that that phrase gets used all the time is just like, Oh, I ate too much ice cream. What should I do? Eat some more more ice cream. cream. (laughs) Send a thief to catch a thief. Oh, that's hair of the dog. Same thing. Wait, hair of the dog that bit you. So the thing oh, that's that... some homeopathy bullshit. No, except it's not because it's in like a normal quantity. If it was homeopathy, it would, it would be, be like, like one one hundredth of. To take well, this... a hair is a pretty small percentage of a dog. <laughs> oh, sir. It's true. It is true. Dogs mm-hmm. just leave those everywhere. Exactly. And it's not good for anything. It no. Won't, won't cure your hangover. <laughs> it's the worst. Dog hair. Yeah. I mean, Finley sheds all over the place, and so if he sheds too much in a room, then I'll oftentimes just send him into the room. 
Mm-hmm. Hair of the dog. Well, send a thief to catch a thief. Same thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Glad we figured that out. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. <laughs> know any Latin? I think we've been over the fact that the only phrase that I do know in Latin is Minute Cantorum, Minute Bellorum, Minute Carbrata Descendus Pantorum. Descendus Pantorum. That means something about pants coming down? A little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. Ah. How do you know this? Mm, tough to tell. Red Guardian seems like she's in a bit of a pickle. She got a nasty phone call. Yeah, the USSR wants her to go back and is, I believe, it implied threatening her loved ones. If she does not return, she doesn't know why they want her to go back. She's not a danger to defect, but they are trying to pressure her and she feels like something's up. But she doesn't know what. Maybe they need her to perform one of their spells. Because we find out from her that the Russian government is super into magic and shit. It's not what I would have thought. No. Like, the USSR was not an organization known for their, like, spiritualism or mysticism or embracing those things. It seems odd on a couple of levels when, after revealing that she instantly recognizes the name of Dr. Omar Karindu, she says, Of course, Dr. Kar- I'm sorry. Bad accent, dude. Of course, Dr. Karindu is among the world's most learned scholars of the paranormal sciences. In my country, such studies are afforded far more official respect than they are here. Your daily papers dismissed him as a fakir and treated his arrival as a mere publicity stunt. Couple things about that. One, as we were just discussing, that seems not true of the Soviet government. And B... Fakier doesn't mean the same thing as faker. Oh, do you think that was an editorial mistake? I think it was. I mean, it's possible that it's Dr. Belinsky, despite being an excellent speaker of English, perhaps there are a few homonyms that are giving her difficulty. But yeah, uh, fakier is a religious ascetic who eschews material goods in favor of the spiritual. That's not the same thing as a faker. She's using it as though it means like he is a phony. Mm-hmm. And that's not cool. No. Bad job, Red Guardian. So the cosmic level threat that Moondragon sensed coming from the ruby was that apparently it is starting to take over people's minds and brainwash people en masse. Mm -hmm. People notice this immediately. It seemed very strange to me that Red Guardian looks out the window and sees a bunch of people on the streets of New York and is immediately just like, they have clearly been brainwashed. Look at them walking around. Mm -hmm. Does she do that whenever she sees a parade? It seems like there are way more parades in Russia. (sighs) Well, it was because they didn't have any pupils in their eyeballs anymore. I think that's the giveaway. To be fair, half the people in the Marvel Universe don't have pupils in their eyeballs. Oh, well, okay, so that doesn't answer it. The other person who noticed immediately that somebody had had their mind taken over by the ruby was Kyle, who, when he is talking to Dr. Karindu, says, His eyes! They glazed over while we were talking! That can't be the first time that's happened to him. Oh, Kyle. I bet every time he talks, people's eyes glaze over. And I bet from now on, every time that happens, he's like, That damn ruby's at it again! Zombied. No, you're a fucking bore, Kyle. Get over it. You tell, you tell that guy. I'm trying to. Okay. Yeah, giving him the business. <laughs> That's the business, all mm-hmm. right. Well, 
You ready to get into the minutiae? I think we should. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. What do you feel like starting with? Why don't we talk about the artwork that we mentioned before and discuss favorite panels. Okay, Cory, what was your favorite panel? There was a lot to choose from, but my favorite one is a little hidden gem. It's tiny. It's on page two, and I call it, No! And it's Hulk looking very upset and saying no. Let's take a look at that. No one tells Hulk what to do. Not fuzzy hair, not bird nose, no one. He does look very enraged. Mm -hmm. Also, that is one of a couple of times where he refers to Luke Cage as fuzzy hair. Yeah, that I don't remember him doing that before. No, I don't believe he did. That's, I think, a touch that is brought to the table by either Roger Sleifer or... David Kraft, and uh, not crazy about it. Not crazy about it. No. I also had one from this page as one of my favorites, and that is a couple of panels later, when the Hulk is still enraged, and Val just stands in front of him. And Val just unflinchingly standing in front of the Hulk's rage. He's raising a fist and saying, Get out of Hulk's way, girl! And she just confidently says, I will not. Not until you calm down. And it's rad. And... Val is rad, and Val is rad in this whole issue. I really like the approach that she takes. She's rad when she stands up to the Hulk there, and is like, okay, let's, you're upset, let's talk about why you're upset, and see if we can do something about that. And it's great. She did a good job. Indeed, she did. Another panel that I really, really like is Hellcat's training montage. It's one of those where it's like there are several scenes happening in a single panel that is all through the filter of a close-up of her mask. And you see like the outline of her eyes and eyebrows and whiskers and mouth of her mask. And then behind that, you see Moondragon doing like powerful psychic shit. And you see her hands coming out of that. And then cosmic space in the background and then you see hellcat training with her psychic abilities and kung fuing some aliens and flying a spaceship and swinging on a rope and it's really really cool looking yeah i liked that one a lot as well yeah i think those are probably my two favorites although the artwork in this issue is really really good and really intense both the introduction of hellcat where she's just leaning against a desk looking like hellcat and Valkyrie's reaction when she first sees her. Valkyrie's look of surprise. It's another one of those panels that is just like, oh, that's Klaus Janssen. Mm-hmm. And it's really good. Yeah, that one is really good. I, I had a toss-up, too, with the panel on page 31 that shows the female protagonists getting ready to, to kick butt. Oh, that is a really good one, too. Yeah, that's really nice. At the very end where it's Val and Hellcat and Red Guardian and Hellcat is saying, The super guys are already under his control, gals. Only we can stop him now. And the Red Guardian says, And the Red Guardian shall stand beside her comrades. Mm. Pretty great. Pretty great. Corey. Yes. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What metaphor did you like, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? I think it's Power Man who says it. And he's talking about the people whose minds have been taken over by the evil uh, Ruby. Mm -hmm. And he starts it by saying, everyone freaked out, which is true. But then he follows it with, they've become zombies, which Ah. is not like literal, like, I'm right, right. Don't shoot them. Don't shoot them. Don't shoot those people. No. But, uh, you know, I thought that was a good 
a good metaphor for the the mindless shambling masses yeah zombies i think that's a good one too you don't sound a hundred percent convinced i think it's pretty good Corey. okay i'm sorry I had a lot of trouble actually finding a good metaphor in this one. It was hard. I think we've already touched on both of the ones that I noted. One was Omar Karindu describing him shooting a unawares Red Raja in the back of the head by saying, I was there to bring it under control. Uh, Mm. Shooting somebody in the back of the head and calling that bringing things under control. That's an uh, interesting metaphor. And the other one was the parable of the of the two popes. Make them fight. Yeah. Send a thief to catch a thief. Send a pope to catch a pope. Send a f- pope to fight a pope. Yes. Pope fight. Man. Make sure none of them have anything particularly sharp on them if you're going to have popes fight each other. Because uh, I understand that a lot of people believe that the pope is inflatable. <laughs> So you don't want to puncture the papal and yeah. inflatability. Yeah, the inflatability of popes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precept of Catholicism. I understand. Mm-hmm. Corey, in every issue of a Defenders comic book, there is just one character who has to be a sucker, who acts in a way that is counter to their previously established character or motivation, in a way that furthers the plot. In this issue, who had to, in the words of the Fat Boys in Crush Groove. Be a sucker. Despite Val being awesome, mm-hmm. I did feel it was pretty much out of character for Hulk to essentially listen to reason. Okay. He does from time to time, but it's it's pretty rare. Yeah. And he's really pissed off, and he wants to find his magician friend. And she's just like, look, buddy, it's not going to happen unless you calm down and we get this shit figured out. And he's like, okay. Yeah, I can see that. I didn't go with that because I feel like in the past, the one thing that can dissuade the Hulk from violence is the concept of friendship and especially where he's upset because he isn't worried about one of his friends to have another friend intercede and be like you're gonna have to hurt me if you want to look for your friend I feel like that's not too far out of his character I mean sending a friend to solve an issue of friendship with friendship it's a real uh send a pope to fight a pope situation Mm -hmm. real hair of the dog Mm, yeah send a thief to catch a pope send a dog to Catch a thief. Hmm. Send a corn across the river with a fox. Oh, this because again. Because that way, this doesn't the make any goddamn sense. Can't get the thief. That's confusing. Agreed. So for my sucker, I had Jack Norris because in the past, Jack Norris has never been one to take fuck off for an answer, and in this issue, he is told twice to fuck off, and fuck off he does. That doesn't seem like the Jack Norris we know and don't like very much. Better be back. Yeah, you're probably right. What was your favorite sound effect? There were some good ones in here. There really were. I think the one for me that that stood out is on page one, and it's the sound, I think, of Hulk smashing Power Man through a wall or a clock or something, and it makes the noise, Brock! (laughs) I like that too. (laughs) It's a fun noise. Luke's face. He's just like, oh, no, man. I've been brocked. Not again. I had two that were tied for my favorite. They're both from the Red Raja, or Steve as the Red Raja, as we find out he is. And they're both the sounds of him utilizing his mystic powers in the form of kind of a cosmic blast type thing. But the first time he does it, it goes, Zask! And the second time, it goes, 
Skazak! S-K-Z-A-K exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Skazak. 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 Pretty good. He's a cosmic maniac. Mm. That I uh, that's the no, Lego bad. the yeah, Lego it's bad. commercial. It's, it's a bad thing when I said thing. it wasn't funny. It was yeah. bad. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hub looks really abashed right now. Yeah, quite contrite, I assure you. Of course, sartorially speaking, what elements of fashion in this issue do you feel are worthy of note? Well, we've already noted it quite a bit, and you did a good history lesson on the Hellcats uh, get-up, mm-hmm. but um, I thought I thought that was pretty cool. It's a cool look. I like that she's got the Adam West Batman-style uh, drawn-on eyebrows on the outside of her cowl. Are they eyebrows, or are they the actual, like, cat eye, like, where there's the pupil that's, like, the little, like, slit thing? What? I didn't get that at all. I thought that was just supposed to be arched eyebrows. Look at the, the panel where she first shows up. Like, okay, in, she, in, oh, her in her eyeball, it does look... Yeah, okay, I can see that. I think that's part of the cowl, but I'm, I might be wrong. I hope so, because if that's her real eyes, that's creepy, man. Yeah, I mean, she's not a cat like Tigro became. Nope. So, yeah, I I, uh, I don't know. But yeah, it's a good, it's uh, yellow and blue. They look great together. Power Man knows it. Hellcat knows it. It's a uh, good look. Indeed. There were a couple of minor characters whose fashion I appreciated in this issue. One of them we see when we look out the window and see the obvious zombie horde because people are walking down the sidewalk like zombies do yep but one of them is a kind of scruffy looking dude but who's wearing a captain america shirt oh i had that guy too page 17 captain Captain america guy yeah and i like the idea i like it whenever they do it in comic books that it's like yeah people would be wearing those shirts yeah i like it in dc when you just see people walking down the street wearing superman shirts there was a whole big thing in the into the spider-verse movie where Everybody was wearing Spider-Man shirts in homage to Spider-Man after his death. And it's it's a nice touch, and I enjoyed that. Yep, I had that same one. There was also a minor background character who has given Luke Cage the business. Baldy? No, not Baldy. There were several Baldies, but there is also a dude with a big old Jerry Curl and a white headband around his head, and he's wearing sunglasses and has a little mustache and just kind of couldn't take my ass off him. He looks angry, too. Yeah, he's not happy. I think he's not happy to be around so many bald dudes and that one dude with a bad toupee and a polo shirt. Yeah, it's a tough crowd. Yeah, it's a it's a desperate group of people that the Ruby has taken over the minds of, and uh, I don't think that guy's happy to be part of the crowd. Nope, not feeling it. He's grimacing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one bald dude in the tight red t-shirt with the little mustache got a Mr. Mm-hmm. Clean look going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good look. Yeah, being a jerk, but I guess he can't help it. Not his fault. Ruby he's, brain. He's a real zombie. Corey, mm-hmm. who is the best defender? And who was the worst offender in this issue? This was actually a lot harder than it usually is for me. Yeah, it was a difficult one for me as well. Kyle did pretty good. He kind of did. I'm used to picking on him, but I don't just want to pick him because he's Kyle. So best, best work. I really liked how concerned about his friends Hulk was, despite getting all smashy. And I just... I give it to the Hulk, because okay. he, he wants to find Magician Friend, and he really keeps things moving to that end. He drives the story forward. stick to Yep. I think that's a decent choice. I decided to go with Valkyrie for a number of reasons. Although, bizarrely, it was actually pretty close between Val and Kyle. Mm. They both told Jack Norris to fuck off, which a- I really appreciated. A plus. But I did decide to go with Val because 
she had better reason to tell Jack Norris to fuck off. And I liked how supportive and there she was for her friends in this issue. The same way that you chose Hulk for his friendship, I really liked that Val was like, yeah, superheroing is is a difficult job and that's that's big and that's important. But also, I know that Tanya, what you're going through is very difficult for you emotionally with your fear of being deported. And so I'm going to stay here and be here for you. I'm going to stay in this apartment and be there for you while you're going through this and be there for you if you need emotional support. And I really appreciated that. I loved how she dealt with the Hulk too, just in terms of standing up to him, but also listening to him and saying like, okay, I'm not just going to let you smash shit, but you know what? You have a point. I'm also worried about Steve. Let's figure out how we're going to deal with this situation. Throughout this whole issue, she was very level-headed. She was very honorable and was also a badass. And uh, yeah, it's nice to see Val written that way. A lot of times with these characters, I feel like we decide if we like them and there isn't always the textual evidence to support how we feel about the character and what we feel the character should be or what their potential is. And Val, it seems like for the first time in a long time, is kind of being written in a way that is how I think of her, you know? I liked her dialogue in this too. It was that really good Asgardian fancy English. Yeah, not full on like Elizabethan, but like hinting at it. Yeah, good stuff. I agree. She was awesome. Conversely, who was the worst offender? Um, I had Val. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, this is not fair, but I couldn't pick anybody else. So for allowing himself to become a big ruby-headed jerk, <laughs> Steve Strange. Bad job, Steve. Corey, that is a total cop-out, and I had the same one. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I mean, whatever his motivation, he is trying to kill his friends in this issue. Yeah, not cool, man. Not cool. You're supposed to be the master of the mystic arts. Yeah. Not the ruby headed kill your friends. He's calling himself the master of the mystic arts, but he's acting like a guy who only minored in the mystic arts. Ah! Zing. What are they teaching him in those schools? Not how to not get taken over by a ruby. I'll tell you that much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay, Steve it is. Good job, Hulk. Good job, Val. Bad job, Steve. Indeed. Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this issue, in support of friendship, uh -huh. justice, mm -hmm. peace, autonomy, not being a zombie. These are all great ideals. No one tells the Hulk what to do. Mm. So the Hulk's rules really are, in this issue, not... No one tells the Hulk what to do, but I think what's at the crux of it is use reason. So Hulk's like, ah, fuck it all, I'm going to smash everything. And Kyle's like, no, you're not going to fucking smash everything. And Hulk's like, fuck you, don't tell me what to do. And then Valkyrie, is, as you said, is just like, Hulk, I understand, I'm upset too. Here's, here's some reason. So how would you distill that into a Hulk's rule? No one tells Hulk what to do, use reason. Oh, very good. Yeah, so don't tell what, don't, it's just in general. If you just tell somebody to do something, like, I'm a pretty easygoing guy, but if sure. you're like, hey, Corey, go stand over there, I'm going to be like, no, you go stand over there. I don't uh, want to stand over there, Corey. I'm all, I'm comfortable right here. Thank you. Corey, you should go stand over there because there's some whiskey over there. Well, okay, I'll be right back. All right, see? Yeah, all right. I works. see how this works now. Yeah? Okay, I got okay. it. Got it. 
I think the Hulk learned a very valuable lesson in this issue, a very cross-stitchable lesson in this issue, and that lesson is sometimes friendship is the greatest superpower of all. Aww. He learned that from Valkyrie. Mm. From the way that, yes, as you said, the other defenders try to stop Hulk's rampage by using brute force, their unbreakable skin, or their strength of two strong men at night time. <laughs> but Valkyrie used the superpower of friendship. Mm-hmm. A superpower she also used when she recognized that her powers, while they are considerable in terms of strength and agility, and could have perhaps been of use in the investigation of Steve's whereabouts, the power that it was more important that she exercised right then was the power of friendship to stand by her friend, the Red Guardian, in her time of need. And truly, friendship is the greatest superpower of all. Except maybe flight. Flight's also good. Oak's rules. Corey, we've seen a little of what Wong is up to in this issue. He uh, is getting brainwashed a little bit by Ruby. Mm-hmm. Not loving that. Mm-hmm. But except for that, it's been a long time. No see for Wong. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think Wong has been up to in the year of our Lord, 1977, and the month of our Lord, February? Well, Wong has found himself in, once again, a bit of a pickle with Steve. Oh, dear. And that is that Wong is inadvertently responsible for what he feels is just some really poor fashion choices on Steve's part. And the result of this is there was the zombie thing that happened, a little brainwashing, whatever. On his way marching to wherever Wong was marching, he did find his zombie self marching into the local record shop and going straight for the what was popular at the time section. And he did find his way into a pristine copy of one of the best-selling records of that time period, which came out on February 4th, which is the masterpiece uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Oh! Yeah. Great. Classic record. However, upon bringing it back to the apartment, Steve came home from doing his magical things, picked it up, and saw that picture of Lindsay Buckingham, and said, Oh! <laughs> I've already got the tights. All I need is a nice vest with some strings and a blouse. (laughs) Very nice. Goes and hooks himself up and walking around the house thinking he's the bee's knees. Oh, boy. And Wong is just tired of it. Plus, Steve just won't stop playing that White Winged Dove song. Oh, jeez. Can't get enough of it. Just like a White Winged Dove. Sings that song. Sounds like she's singing, ooh, ooh, ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freaking white-winged dove. So, <laughs> that's what Wong was up to. Fair enough. That was one of the things that Wong was up to. The rest of Wong's adventures also did involve Doctor Strange by omission. You see, well, Doctor Strange was off getting his mind taken over by the Red Raja and the uh, Star of Kapistan. Wong was left holding the ball. He had to field all of these, uh... Sudden <laughs> expression? Yeah. <laughs> the bag. Oh, holding the bag. Well, it's a bowling ball bag, and so the bag is holding the ball. So by the transitive property, Wong's holding the ball. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's get left holding the ball, man. Let's... Yeah. So, yeah, Wong's left holding the ball. Some friends. Yeah, exactly. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so Wong's fielding a bunch of calls that would normally be answered by Steve. 
And there's some miscommunication because Wong's not normally used to dealing with all of these things. He got a call on February 1st that was somebody, and he, he missed the details at the beginning, but he's like, I'm having a problem, and only the defenders can help me. And so Wong's like, well, shit, this sounds serious. I better go check it out. So he went to the town of Hillsdale. (laughs) Oh, no, I know where this is going. How are you doing this? And when he got there, it turned out that the people that needed his help were a basketball team, and they had gotten the wrong number, and they were having problems with playing defense. And so he ended up coaching and helping shore up the defense on this basketball team and make sure that they had better defenders. And they really did need it because they were truly terrible on offense. Mm. But due to Wong's intervention, that team ended up winning their big basketball game against Person High School, which was a team that was probably monsters or something. Doesn't it seem like if you call your school Person High School, that's like kind of... Person from Earth. Yeah, I'm a human man from Earth. Right. Like one of those deals. Mm -hmm. Like probably they were just a thousand cockroaches in a human skin trying to play basketball. John Carpenter's situation. Well, I was going men in black, but yeah, that too. Oh, no, it's the Prince of Darkness. Oh, right, right, right. Or Creepshow. Okay. But he didn't walk around. No. Sorry. Vincent D'Onofrio walked around. Anyway, fortunately, thanks to Wong's intervention, Hillsdale was able to defeat, quote, person, unquote, high school in the lowest scoring basketball game in history, two to nothing. Oh. Now that's some pretty good defense. Oh. Yeah. That's like, if I were to play basketball. The other phone call that Wong received was from some uh, people in Nova Scotia who (laughs) told him they were having a little bit of a Cthulhu problem. So he rushed up to Canada. He's like, fuck, I fucking hate these Cthulhus. Steve's always having to deal with them. I've learned a few tricks about Cthulhu wrangling in my day. He gets up to Nova Scotia, is all geared up to do battle, and it turned out to be a bit of a false alarm. What the local fisherman had thought was a Cthulhu was, in fact, a 45-pound lobster. Damn. It's a big fucking lobster. Heaviest crustacean ever. Oh, that must have been so old. Yeah, because those fuckers just keep growing. I hope they didn't try and eat it. Oh, they ate it. It wouldn't have been Wong ate it. It was delicious. No. Big lobster's still pretty tasty. A little lobster's better. I don't know, man. I've had some big lobsters that tasted pretty good. Two pounds and under. Corey, I would welcome the opportunity to eat a 50-pound lobster. I would eat a 50-pound lobster in one sitting. All right, let's call it Wong. Wong, I think we've got a Cthulhu. (laughs) (laughs) And we need some help with defense. (laughs) Yeah. You need to help tighten up our defense oh. against this Cthulhu. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, that was how Wong dealt with it being a Wong time with him no-seeing Steve. Without Steve's cape, instead of that stupid vest. Thanks for joining us, listeners. This has been A Hoot. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland.gmail.com. You can find us on Stitcher. On emails, on Tumblr, on Netscape. Wherever fine podcasts are found. Yeah, look for us there. Also, in your hearts and minds, we'll be in there waving up at you, giving a big thumbs up. Uh, Also, we're on Instagram and Twitter and shit. 
If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you will get access to a lot of bonus material, including the episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show, that just went up where Corey was a guest, and we talked about the Howard the Duck movie. It was a movie. It certainly was. Probably. Yeah, but, uh... What the Duck, Etc. is a monthly show that Lisa and I do that is exclusively for our donors as a reward for them uh, helping us out and uh, contributing to the show. So if you'd like to listen to that, Lisa is a wonderful co-host, and yeah, I think you'd like it. So, you know, do that. Even if you don't want to listen to it, you can still give us money. We don't mind at all. Thanks. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Or, if you're over 60, www.patreon.com slash ttwasteland for all your giving us money needs. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Anything else I should tell people about? Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell everybody. Yeah. Tighten up the defense. Catch the wave of the future. (laughs) You don't want to miss out on the wave of the future. Few do. Hang ten on it, buddy. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Cowbunga! Okay.